0: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you are listening to Mission Daily. Selected as Best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning.
1: Hey everyone, this is Chad, and Steph is looking at me like I said something. She's laughing. So at least there's that. But we are in studio. The sun is shining in Palo Alto. It was raining a little bit earlier this morning, but the clouds have cleared up and brought us to today's episode, which I'm excited to share with you. Today's episode is with Adam Blitzer. Adam is the co-founder of Pardot, and he's also the EVP and GM of Sales Cloud at Salesforce. If you didn't know, Sales Cloud is the largest business unit inside Salesforce. And Salesforce, if you're wondering who they are, what they do, they offer the number one CRM. And training for sales leaders and teams, uh, in addition to many, many other things. So, if you're interested in business, you've probably heard of Salesforce before. You probably use them, your company uses them, or you've heard us talk about them on the podcast, where they're a generous sponsor and a trusted partner and a teammate. When we create content, when we look for sponsors, uh, the business units at Salesforce are incredible. And Adam is a leader of one of those biggest teams. So, working with salesforce has been illuminating because when i got into business i didn't know what i didn't know and adam is a person who has explored much further on his entrepreneurial journey than i have and he's brought back some of the insights and lessons that he's learned along his journey of building pardot and co-founding pardot which is a marketing automation company from nothing to a 100 million dollar exit to exact target exact target later sold to salesforce for 2.5 billion dollars with a B. So how did Adam do it? If we look at his story, it's fascinating. He built Pardot to a $100 million exit without the help of traditional VCs or financing. So when you think about bootstrapping and building a business, when all you have is $8 and a domain name that's called Pardot or Pardo, as Adam likes to say, you're facing one of the biggest challenges in the world. So how did Adam do it? How did he make that exit? And how did he go on to keep his business unit not only intact inside exact target, but then grow it and then grow it again inside Salesforce. This is a lesson that has a lot of applications to every area of your life, not just business. So stay tuned. Please give Adam a warm welcome and we will dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Mission Daily. Today's guest is Adam Blitzer, the EVP and GM of Sales Cloud at Salesforce. Adam, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. Great to be with you. So we are here in Salesforce East, and this is an exciting time to be here because Salesforce has been on a bit of a tear recently. You're announcing new products, and I would love for you to tell everyone who you are and what you do here. Sure. Uh, so as you said, I run the
2: Sales Cloud. That, that's the product that most people think about when they think about Salesforce. It's our franchise product and it's hard to believe. Uh, it's actually turning 20 this year. We just celebrated our 20th birthday. I joined Sales Cloud through the acquisition of a company called Exact Target. So in 2007, I founded a company called Pardot. I sold that company to Exact Target in 2012. And then right after that, we sold Exact Target to Salesforce. It was sort of a, a wham-bam—you know, almost double acquisition. Really uh, exciting ride, and that's how I got to Salesforce.
1: Where did you grow up, and how did this all start? We want to get into your origins a little bit. Sure. So I grew up
2: in Cincinnati. Uh, my parents were both doctors; both went into private practice. From kind of an early age, I got to see two uh, sort of entrepreneurs building out their own practices. You know, definitely a Midwesterner at heart was in Cincinnati until college when I went to Duke. Uh, so this was obviously a tough year for me. Uh, <laughs> March, March for a Duke grad uh, is always glorious or extremely painful. Cool. You always root for Duke or you root for your second favorite team, which is whoever happens to be playing UNC. Cool. So uh, in college, I was a public policy major, so a little bit focused on economics, a little bit on government. And what was great is, you know, just all the other kids I met, one of whom would later turn out to be my co-founder for Pardot.
1: And I want to dig into that a little bit because I think the best companies typically have a shared history where the co-founders go back, they have some... Uh, common uh, struggles and, yeah, a shared history that's positive. So how'd you meet your co-founder?
2: So uh, my co-founder was a, a friend of a friend of mine at Duke. And so we always knew each other throughout college. We didn't get the chance to work with each other until the uh, the out experience. So after college, we went our separate ways. I went to Japan. I wound up living in Japan for a total of about four years. I was originally there doing judo. Uh, it's Japan's national sport. It's a lot like wrestling. It's an Olympic sport. If you're really serious about it in the US, you tend to either go to Europe to train or you go to Japan to train. And as I sort of grew up in that I became 24, which is sort of getting old for judo, uh, you've sort of either made the Olympics or haven't made it by then. That's when I got into digital marketing. I joined a digital ad agency. I got to work with a lot of sort of eCRM type technologies, uh, electronic CRM, email marketing, landing pages, forms, et cetera. Loved it, had a great experience on that agency side, moved back to the U.S., continued on the agency side, but met up with that buddy of mine from college. He already had a background in web content management, and so he had that background in content management. I had a background in email email marketing. We looked out there and we said, hey, these solutions are great, but they're really B2C focused. You know, What do all these B2B companies do? They know what's happening in their deals when their sales reps are on the phone with their customers. But there's a lot happening in between those phone calls. How can they track all that activity? How can they get at that intent? And there really wasn't a good way to do it. And that was really the, the basis or the genesis of Pardot.
1: So I've heard a lot of the uh, Pardot genesis or Pardot, if you're so inclined, uh, started <laughs> at Wendy's. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, that?
2: Yeah, sure. So going back to the name, a lot of people like to ask about the name. And as you said, uh, we call it Pardot. You know, it's the easiest way to pronounce it when you read it. Probably about half the people out there will say Pardo. It sounds more sophisticated, like Target uh, or Uber, which I haven't gotten to catch on yet. (laughs) Uh, And then there's always one person from the Northeast who says Padat. I like but, it. But uh, Pardot is the kind of name you get for a company when you have $8 to spend on a domain name.
1: It's a great domain. I <laughs> mean, it's, it sounds sophisticated, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, top level. So <laughs> still, still rolling. Still rolling. Still rolling, still rolling.
2: Yeah. In 2007, basically every domain name was already taken. And our budget for a domain name was 8 bucks. We wanted a name that meant something to someone somewhere. That's an incredibly low bar, but almost <laughs> unachievable already. <laughs> so we went out to dictionary.com and we looked up marketing. And basically every language was already registered, except for number 26, which was Latvian for to market or to sell. We had no special connection to Latvia, but we were faster to register domain names, so we were, we were off to the races for 8 bucks. So to your point on, uh, on Wendy's, I was an avid Wendy's fan. I probably still am. I'm a big fan of the spicy chicken sandwich. But one of the things when you go to Wendy's you know, and, and you're eating and you look down, you, know, you, you notice the tray liner right? The tray liner always has all kinds of advertisements for different Wendy's products, et cetera. And I thought, wow, like Wendy's just taking advantage of all of the real estate that they have available to them for marketing. And imagine the massive number of impressions that Wendy's gets from their tray liners versus doing something like a Super Bowl ad. And so that idea of sort of uh, marketing showing up in unexpected places, marketing, taking advantage of impressions that other people might not be thinking of. And sort of this, you know, most guerrilla marketing techniques really stuck with me. It's something we used throughout at our experience for Pardot. And, you know, I think that was a little bit of the
1: inspiration for it. I would love to back up a little bit to your days practicing judo. So you practice judo and I think wrestling, right? And those are one-on-one sports. So you practice judo, if I'm right, for 15 years?
2: Yeah, I, I practiced it for a long time, 15 to 20 years, kind of in that range
1: What did you learn about either life or competition or maybe relationships through judo?
2: Yeah. Well, one of the things I loved about judo, you know, team sports are great, but I loved in judo that it was all on you, right? You win or you lose based on your effort, based on what you put out there and what you leave on the mat. And, you know, learned a lot of different things from doing judo for so many years. um, But one of them was just related to grit and hustle and your ability to stick with something. Uh, In judo, I was never the most talented person out there fighting. There were were other people who had a much better knack for it. And, you know, I just made an agreement with myself. I was never going to be outworked. I was never going to lose a match because I wasn't in the best possible condition or I didn't do the best possible preparation. And you find you're able to beat a lot of people who are more talented than you just by being more prepared, just by wanting it more, working harder, not the day of the tournament or the day of the match, but in the months leading up to it. The other thing I learned that was really important was about competing asymmetrically. And actually the whole idea of judo, in theory, the whole sport is designed around sort of the idea of asymmetric forces. So not competing strength against strength, but using your strength against your opponent's weakness. So if someone pushes you, instead of pushing back, you pull, right? And if if your strength is sort of 3 and their strength is 3, if you push against each other, you know it equals 0, right? But if you pull when they push, you sort of have this power of six, you know, if you want to think about it a little bit mathematically. And so in judo, I would always try to force the game into something that I was good at. In judo for me, that was grappling, that was sort of being on the ground. It's a little bit like what you see in in UFC today. And that would take away my opponent's strength, which typically was kind of throwing and and staying standing. And it didn't matter how good they were at that if I forced them to fight on my ground, on my, my sort of terms. And in the startup world, I also think that that's incredibly important, especially when you're a small business, especially when you're a startup, if you try to compete strength for strength against an established player, it's kind of a fool's errand. I mean, you're just playing the game that they want you to play. They're always going to have more sales firepower. They're always going to have an existing book of business. They're going to be able to spend more on R&D, more on marketing. We were in an incredibly well-funded space. We had two competitors that raised $100 plus in venture capital two more that raised $60 million plus. As I mentioned, we raised $8 and we spent it on our domain <laughs> name. So we were a little bit different in that we were bootstrapped. And so we thought all the time about how can we compete asymmetrically? How can we fight in a way where our opponent's strengths didn't matter and the battle was all about our strengths? And that was really our focus.
1: So not to throw any of those competitors under the bus, but uh, Pardon the pun there. Yeah, when you were building Pardot, it had to have been very intimidating to see those press releases about the other companies or competitors raising that much money. I would love to hear some stories, if you remember any, about how you had no resources, how they had so many resources, and how sometimes more resources is just not the answer.
2: Yeah. Uh, the, I mean, the good thing about having no resources is you can't make that big of a mistake, right? right. Uh, so that, the nice thing is you don't have enough money to uh, to make a mistake that is sort of fatal for your business. We looked at not having a huge amount of funding as a key constraint that shaped our strategy. So we were running the business in Atlanta. At the time, there were very few startups in Atlanta. Our competitors were, for the most part, in very expensive markets like Silicon Valley, Boston, etc. So our cost structure right away was just much, much better you know, from a real estate perspective, from from an employee perspective. And one of the things we were able to do because we were scrappy and we had that sort of grit and determination was really take advantage of things like subleases and hopping around in a way that I think a really well-funded high-flying startup might not even think about or potentially might not sort of deign to do. We founded the company in 07 right before the bottom fell out of the economy. Now, I think a lot of startups, especially startups who were already funded and looking for their next round, saw that as, oh, my God, I'm never going to get funded again. For us, we didn't have any funding to begin with. And so because companies were sort of you know, falling apart left and right around us, it meant we could hire anybody we wanted. Salaries were not yet through the roof, even for engineers. It meant we had our pick of offices. We moved on to the 34th floor of a 34-story building in Atlanta and we got space that could fit 140 people. We had 20 people at the time. And the company that was up there was begging us to take it off their hands. And we paid an effective rate in the beginning. We later grew into a higher rate, but we paid an effective rate of $4 per square foot. And that's not per per month like you might hear in Silicon Valley. That's per year. And so it was you could get those things if you're scrappy, if you're willing to look for them. We bought their 140 Herman Miller Aeron chairs for a dollar uh, because <laughs> used furniture sort of has no value to most companies.
1: There are people in our audience right now that are just crying. They're <laughs> just crying, right,
2: right, right. So these are the things like, you know, you could look at the economy, you could look at the lack of funding, you could look at those things and say like, "Whoa, is me. Or you could say, wow, how does this change how we operate the business? You know, let's make sure we get a, a killer office. Let's hire young people that might not have a ton of tenure but they fit our core values. They have heart. No one knows marketing automation anyway, so we'll train them up. We'll give this, them this amazing environment and they'll never leave. Uh, you have an incredible retention rate of your employees. You have super high morale. So everyone is worth you know, essentially more than one person potentially at your competition. And you can squeeze a lot more out of the business than you thought possible.
1: What was the first major victory, whether it was a new client, new logo, or maybe just uh a new insight that you had into B2B marketing where you and your co-founder thought, okay, we can win against the competition and we can win in this market.
2: Yeah. Uh, first major victory, I mean, you know, getting the first dollar uh, was sure. important and that that is an incredible feeling when you get your first dollar and and it's your first dollar earned, right? It wasn't one of your buddies buying the product or it wasn't another startup found, you know, funded by the same fund as yours. Someone you have very little connection to paying for it. That's an incredible feeling you know that you've created something that another business is willing to put their neck on the line for and start paying for to use. So I, I think that was a big milestone, crossing the desert and getting to a, a position where we were cash flow positive was a huge milestone for us because again we were a business that that built itself organically, which in SaaS, you know, is a very unusual thing. We just saw Zoom uh, go public the other day and, you know, you're seeing the market really reward them. And you know, they've they've gone public while being profitable. That is almost unheard of for a SaaS company. Obviously, we did it at a much smaller scale, but that feeling of crossing the desert was incredible. The biggest win to me and where I knew we were going to be strong in our market and we were going to be able to compete asymmetrically was when we won Best Place to Work in Atlanta. And to me, that meant Wow, we're really doing something right. That's huge. Yeah, we didn't, you know, we didn't just build a good product, we didn't just get a bunch of customers. We didn't launch interesting features. We built a really good company. And that to me meant more than anything. So we won best place to work for our category in 2012, and then we won best place to work in our category in 2013. So that was the year after the acquisition, which just speaks to the continuity of culture I think between those two periods. And culture became the way we competed. That was our secret weapon. And it shined during the sales process. It shined during the implementation process. It was something that customers felt uh, and something that they really appreciated.
1: Are there a couple examples of culture building or insights you found to help build the culture? What was that process like for you? And how did you think about building culture? For us, it was
2: at first it was accidental. So we got to 20 employees who were great sort of by accident. You know, we made a lot of mistakes getting to our first, you know, we probably hired 30 employees to get to our first 20, something like that. And when we got to 20, we looked around and said, God, this is awesome. You know, how do we not screw this up as we continue to grow? And we said, we better figure out what, what this, quote unquote, is. And so we looked at our quirky team of 20 and everybody, you know, they're from different walks of life and backgrounds. And we said, what do these people have in common? And we came up, we started writing down words. We came up with this list of 10 things that most people had in common. And then we eventually condensed it down to three that everybody had in common. And those really became our values. So for us, it was people that are positive, self-starting, supportive. Positive because you have high highs and you have very low lows. You have these troughs as well with startups. You want someone who can celebrate the highs with the best of them and forget the lows as quickly, learn from them, but forget them as quickly as possible. Uh, Self-starting, no one knew anything about marketing automation. The vendors were all still writing the playbook. It wasn't even called marketing automation. We wanted people who could come in and hit the ground running. I was 26 when I co-founded the company. We had no budget. We mostly hired people younger than us. So it meant people were essentially working for their first time or or their second time. We wanted people who could just figure things out, come at things with a beginner's mind. And then supportive. It wasn't the kind of environment where you ever heard someone say, gee, I'd love to help you, but that's not really my job. Everybody was all about the mission, right? Everybody was into it, and everybody you know, was, was heading towards one goal. So that's how we thought. I guess more, more than culture, we really thought about those values. Whenever we hired, we hired specifically for those values. Up until our first 150 employees, I interviewed every single person who got an offer. Obviously, that's hard to scale eventually, but we thought the number one job of a CEO or of a co-founder is hiring the right people, building the right culture, and maintaining it. So if they could get to us in the interview round, we figured they can do the job. No no problem, they can do the job. But will they really thrive here? Will they represent us well? So for us, we'd have a normal kind of interview, but we'd only be listening for are they positive, are they self-starting, are they
1: supportive. And you mentioned marketing automation wasn't really a buzzword or phrase back then. How did you go about creating that category or educating the market uh, about this brand new thing?
2: So the category name changed at least once a year. <laughs> uh, and you know it was getting frustrating. We were printing new business cards all the time. I think we just stopped on marketing automation and dug our heels in. And eventually enough vendors stopped with us that that, that became the name of the category. It wasn't what the analysts wanted. Uh, in fact, the analysts almost still don't use that name for the category. They tend to call it lead management or CRM lead management, mm. something like that. But for the most part, the buyers call it marketing automation. I think it was eventually, you know, the vendor sort of kind of all stuck on it and we all built the market together. The nice thing I mentioned, you know, we had really heavily funded competitors, that wound up being really advantageous to build a market. If you're out there and you're doing something and you're the only one doing it, you know, you sometimes you'll hear a pitch from someone who wants an investment and says, "This is great, we have no competition." That person is either a genius or The opposite of a genius, right? (laughs) And I know I'm no genius. So when I looked out there and I saw that there were, you know, four other decent companies who were getting a lot of traction, I thought, wow, this is going to be a big space and a space that's not likely to have a winner, you know, winner take all dynamic, a space where it's likely to have several winners emerge in the market. And And MarTech tends to play out that way.
1: Yeah. And you have, I mean, on average, I think 40 to 50% of every VC dollar goes into marketing and advertising. So they're the ones that are going to be educating the market. So yeah, another great sign. Are there any stories that you can share from the early days where you and your co-founder had basically like a dark night of the soul moment? Like those moments come up where maybe you lose a key account or something like that. What was that like? What was a low moment and uh, how did you bounce back?
2: Certainly I can think of a couple from the first uh, year or two One had to do with our infrastructure. So this, you know, we started the company in 07. SaaS had been around for quite a while, right? Companies like Salesforce had started it in uh, 1999. NetSuite had been around for a while. But it was still somewhat new. And these were the days really before true infrastructure as a service, true commodity sort of AWS, Azure, Google Cloud platform. And so you tended to still have data centers. You know, you leased the data center, but you had you had kind of real iron, things weren't nearly as flexible as they are today. And we had our data center, we had a really reputable provider, you know, that has their fail safes in place. And this, you know, I think we had 30 customers or so at this point, but they had, you know, sort of one of their act of God kind of moments where the whole data center is down and sort of unrecoverable. You know, it's like the domino rally of things that had to happen to put it in that state, but it got into that state. And I remember calling all 30 customers and you know thank god it wasn't 5000 customers or 10000 customers at that point but spending time with them on the phone and and feeling powerless and feeling like there's nothing we could do and after that we sort of vowed we're never going to be in that position again that was that was like the toughest day we'd had to that point and we really over-rotated and probably became a little bit unnecessarily complex in how resilient we made things Ah, uh, for the scale that we were at, but we always made sure we had geographically redundant data centers and things being replicated between the two, probably at a stage earlier than we needed because we basically said, we're never going to go back into that trough of of feeling powerless. The other piece, you know that I think was tough for us, uh, that probably happened in our, you know about a year into the business, probably six months into the business, right before we made our first dollar, we had doubts as to whether or not we were going to make a dollar. And we said, wow, do we, are we really gonna be able to sell this thing? No one's out there looking for it. The space doesn't exist. Do we think we can actually get in front of someone? And we were, you know, again, we were bootstrapping the company, we were self-funding it, and we basically said, hey, and this was probably September of our first year we founded the company in March of that year, we said, if by the end of the year we haven't done X number of deals, we're probably gonna pack it in. And you know, I was getting a little nervous that we weren't going to wind up, you know, doing our first X number of deals. And we wound up really finding what I call an early evangelist, you know, just the person who probably irrationally believes in you and believes in your mission with no skin in the, you know, they have no, no reason to, sure, but they, they just love what you're doing so much that they're going to help you make it happen. And in our case, there was just this local marketing consultant named Todd Michaels, one man show who worked with probably 15 really, really small B2B companies that, you know, you've never heard of for the most part. And he said, he, he took one look at the product, which as my head of sales at the time said, did less than nothing. He looked <laughs> at that product and he said, all of my customers have to have this. I'm going to get all of my customers to use it. And sure enough, one by one, he got them to use it. Now they hmm. paid us almost nothing because like most entrepreneurs, we charge way too little at the beginning and a ton of those customers are still customers to this day. So, you know, you wow. fast forward 12, 13 years from then, but had we not found that early evangelist who helped us get some paying customers that we had no connection to, we'd never met, giving us real feedback with real skin in the game, we might have packed it in in that first year.
0: Are they on those legacy prices?
2: <laughs> we we've, we've never raised prices on an existing customer for Pardot users. Wow. Uh, So one of the things- That's incredible. I mean, I've seen over and over in the market, you know, with a SaaS company is, you know, if a customer believed in you and they paid market rate at that time, even if you've raised the price on that addition, you know, it's just goodwill. Bring that customer along with you. They trusted you. You know, they trusted us 13 years ago. Sure. Right. You know, the product did much less 13 years ago. Just take them along on the ride.
1: And that's basically an investment in word of mouth marketing, right? Totally. And it's going to pay off. It's going to reduce churn and every, all of those things. When you were building in Atlanta, you're probably flying around the country, going to conferences, going to B2B events. I've heard you, I think, talk about serious decisions. And I've seen some videos of you early at Dreamforce. How did you go about getting involved and getting active in the ecosystem? Of conferences and stuff like that.
2: Yeah. So one of the things, um, one of the things we didn't do was any face-to-face meetings beyond conferences. So because I mentioned we had this constraint around funding, we became incredibly efficient at doing everything remotely. Now the Great Recession sort of helped help that whole movement along. The whole inside sales movement really came of age then. Companies were slashing their travel budgets. It also coincided with this rise of you know, go to meeting, WebEx, eventually Zoom, all these web conferencing service getting, services getting better. Those two things are really combined to help people become more comfortable doing bigger and bigger deals without ever meeting in person, without ever meeting face-to-face. So we built the whole business around that. We were 100% inside sales, 100% of our implementations were delivered remotely. We would meet custer- customers at conferences. They would see me. They'd always say, wow, I thought you were taller. Uh, <laughs> I was always always say, I thought I was too. Um... But we did attend kind of the major conferences for us. Dreamforce was always the biggest. That was that's Salesforce's annual conference. We would go to annual conferences for other CRM vendors that we also partnered with, and then a couple of the marketing sort of conferences, which actually wound up being a little bit less targeted uh, if they weren't purely B two B focused. And you know, we found when we were at those conferences, we're next to our competitors,
1: and then you know, you could compete toe to toe. It's game on. And as you're building those relationships, when did Exact Target come into the picture? How did you get connected with them, and how did that relationship start? Exact Target—it uh, was a company we'd always admired. So Exact Target was an early
2: player in SaaS, and so we sort of said, "Hey, let's let's follow a lot of their playbook." It was a company that was incredibly capital efficient in its early days. In its later days, it wound up raising a significant amount of money to sort of issue the public markets for a little while because they they became choppy during the recession and then carry it to become a public company. Uh, and we sort of modeled ourselves after Exact Target in its early days. We also love that when Exact Target went public, in their S1 statement, they listed corporate culture as a competitive advantage. I'd never seen that in a company's S1 statement before. You know, usually they talk about their IP and their patent profile. And I would love to hear what that, that was like on The Rose like Show, that.
1: what type of pushback. E-
2: exactly, <laughs> about that. exactly. But we thought it was incredible because that's how we thought of ourselves as well. But our go-to-market largely was picking off email marketing customers. So not necessarily just exact target, but there was a whole slew of you know email marketing companies that were all doing really well. Email marketing had already come of age, and whether you were a B two B customer or a B two C customer, you're really back then you were using a solution built for high volume B two C because it was the only thing available. So our playbook and likely the you know our competition's playbook was really going to those B two B customers and saying. You're doing email marketing, that's great. You're doing lead generation at Google, you should really be using B2B marketing automation. And you don't need to create a new budget to do that. Take your email marketing budget, turn it into marketing automation, and you're going to be off to the races. And that was a really successful model because you weren't saying you need a new budget for a mousetrap, you're sort of saying we can just help you catch mice much more easily than you're doing today. So ExactTarget uh, approached us in 2012 really to be their B2B marketing automation answer. They had attempted a partnership with you know one of our competitors a little bit earlier than that and just decided, hey, we don't want to be at arm's length in a partnership. We want to be in this game. So approached us in sort of summer 2012. We negotiated the deal. We were two first-time entrepreneurs, so we could not have been sort of more ridiculous uh, during the <laughs> negotiations. You know, they threw out a number and we essentially countered with infinity, uh, you know, like not not knowing exactly how we should be valuing ourselves we didn't use an investment bank we did it all ourselves
1: and- So your general general counsel negotiated or what, how, yeah who yeah, our, our
2: general counsel was probably the equivalent of like Uncle Lenny. Uh, no, <laughs> we did we did actually have a, a, an excellent attorney, but it not our, like RGC.
0: <laughs> yeah, <but> yeah, that's <laughs> exactly like RGC. Not
2: not a major firm, but someone who used to be at a major firm who we knew very very well. But he, you know, obviously helped us with the T's and C's. But it was the kind of thing where we didn't have a board because we self-funded the business. So you know, they would throw a number at us, and then we would respond in about five seconds with what we wanted. And then, right after you hit send, you know, when you have the
1: like sender's remorse, yeah. like, oh, I shouldn't have sent that email. I wish the undo option in Gmail stayed available longer. <laughs>
2: exactly. And, you know, what wasn't available back then, yeah. we're like, what have we done? They're never going to talk to us again. And they were so nice, uh, lived up to their culture, realized, okay, these, these yokels are, are good at building a product and a business. They don't necessarily know how to negotiate an MA transaction, <laughs> um, you know, and they would respond to us right away.
1: But that's the type of authenticity, though, that you can't, because uh, nobody goes into an M&A transaction, like, they're not going to fake that. And right. I feel like if you show up and be oh, authentic, yeah. that's uh, because they want to work with somebody that's trustworthy, too. And Totally. Yeah.
0: So, or sorry, they're going to just torch the company, right? Like, <laughs> right. that's the other thing. is like...
2: <laughs> well, that that's what was another thing that was interesting. Um, you know, my co-founder and I sort of argued about a little bit whether or not to sell the company. And I was really pro-selling the business. I thought we'd gotten it into a great spot. We're at sort of a local maximum. We're at a great growth trajectory. We had the opportunity to sell the business for a very, like, very significant multiple, and it was 100% employee owned, so it was going to be a great outcome for for us and and for many of our key and early employees. And his argument was the business is doing so well, we could wait a year and sell it for twice as much. And I said, yes, but who can buy us for twice as much? Right? You know, a bunch of companies we probably don't want to get acquired by. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking of the kind of companies that you know, tend to shred the companies they acquire, getting the IP, not not retaining the culture, that sort of thing. And I said, Exact Target is really going to take care of this business. They care about culture as much as we do. The CEO, Scott Dorsey, incredible, incredible leader, the kind of person that, you know, he basically knows the name of every person at the company, you know, even up to 1,800 employees or so. And landing the company in the best possible spot to continue to thrive was really important to me.
0: That's, that's fascinating. So, At that point in time, when you're thinking, like, I I think this is a great time to sell, is part of you thinking, I want to go work at Exact Target? Like, this just seems like an awesome place to work for me personally. Or was it kind of like, I can't believe we just brought this whole thing to fruition. Like, I can't imagine going and doing this all again and spending, you know, another seven years in the weeds, potentially.
2: It's a weird, it's a weird feeling. And actually, it was only five years. So
0: So it was pretty short. But to me, you know,
2: the reason that I was so excited to stay is, it was early days for marketing automation. You know, the key players were all still, in the scheme of things, small. The companies that we think of as the leaders in marketing automation were all still small. I mean, no one, no one was at a billion in revenue. No one was at five hundred million in revenue. No one at that time was even at two hundred million in revenue. And a couple of the other players were sort of about to exit in one way or another. Obviously, we were about to exit. And so to me, there was so much unfinished business. And, you know, a lot of my friends who do startups, you know, they say, Hey, what are you gonna do next? They always ask me what I'm gonna do next, both during that exact target acquisition and then later the Salesforce acquisition. And I always get to give a fun answer. I say, next I'm going to win. And I don't mean win at life. Like people listening to this podcast can't see me, but I have bad posture, I'm bald and I'm short. Like I have lost, <laughs> right? But I could still win (laughs) debatable. Yeah, I could still win at marketing automation. Sure. You know, you you put the business in the right environment as the market is still playing out, you have the opportunity to win. And I think it's really pretty rare to have this sort of right product at the right time, you know, with the right team behind it. That doesn't mean you will win. Certainly nothing is given to you. But even just to have the opportunity, which we never would have had the opportunity to sort of win the market as a startup, uh, is pretty special. And that's something that keeps me fired up. Yeah, one more thing on
0: that. So I think one of the things that would be so exciting, I mean, we're in a company now, obviously, that like very similar trajectory in terms of like revenue revenue growth, bootstrap growth, and all that sort of stuff. And one of the things that you see on the horizon that I'm sure you saw on the horizon was like, it would be nice to have a ton of money that we could pour into. Like, we've proved that this market works. We've proved that the product works within the market and that the customers love this stuff. Like, I would just love to have X amount of dollars to shove into this right now. And it kind of seems like with the acquisition, it was kind of that opportunity where now we have, whatever, 1,800 employees behind this, that there's resources that I never had before. And like, let's go win this thing.
2: Yep. Well, let me back up a little bit to sort of how we got into the position of not raising funding. So when we started, we never said, hey, we're going to start a business and not raise money. Uh, That was not our intention at all. We very much thought we would raise money. But once the bottom fell out of that economy and you had, you know, Sequoia put out their end of good times or or that deck that was sort of the ushering in the nuclear winter of VC, and we were two first-time entrepreneurs in Atlanta, sort of very far from where the big money was, it became clear it was going to be tough to raise money for us. And so ran the business with all the constraints around it and then really started to hit a growth spurt. So 2010, marketing automation became a thing. People were actually actively looking for it. It became a matter of winning our share of deals. And you could see this nice trajectory starting to happen where you had a really repeatable business model and said, boy, can we just put our foot on the gas? So we went out and we started to shake the tin cans. you know, And we said, oh, we're only going to raise money from really really top tier vcs for whatever reason we said that and then we find ourselves sitting in sequoia's office and if you've been in sequoia's office you're like you look at the stock certificates on the wall I have, and yeah. you're
1: taking, like taking photos it's amazing
2: yeah you're like wow i am in the wrong place you're like looking <laughs> up and you're like i know all of those companies and you know we have a meeting with sequoia and it's great and they say like you guys are you you're going to do great. You're great entrepreneurs. And I'm like, "Whoa, could you write that down so I could like put Seriously? it on my mom's refrigerator?" And you know, we sort of kept going down the line, and I think it was 2011 when we met with Benchmark. And we met with Bill Gurley, sort of a legendary partner at Benchmark. And you know, my my co-founder and I both went to Duke, so we're super into college basketball and basketball, and you know, Bill is he played college basketball at Florida, I think. He's probably 6'9. Like every VC, he was drinking uh, espresso. In my hand, espresso like looks like this giant chalice. In his hand, it's the thimble from Monopoly. <laughs> uh, and just a really cool meeting because his advice really surprised us. He said, "I wouldn't raise money if I were you guys. I think it would be crazy to raise money in your position." And we thought, you know what 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 the heck? Like a VC is telling us not to raise money." And he said, "Well, you know, at this point, it's probably going to add risk rather than remove risk. He said, you guys have gotten this far. You're probably worth, let's say you're worth $30 million today. You guys own the whole company or, or your employees own the whole company. If someone bought you for $30 million, would you be happy? And we said, oh my God, I hope someone buys us for 30 million, right? <laughs> we said, yeah, of course, like it's life, life-changing money and it's a great outcome. And he said, okay, what if someone, you know, a year from now buys you for 50 million, would you be happy? And of course the answer is yes. And he said, now let's say you raise money, right? And you take however many millions of dollars, $5 million, this was, times were less frothy than they are now, and your valuation is now 90 million or 100 million. Well, you're not really worth that. You have to grow into it. And no venture capital firm is going to fund you once, right? They have to put their money into play, especially given the size of these funds. So all of a sudden, you know, you're on this train, right? And it's it's hard to get off. And as you get bigger and bigger, the number of companies that can acquire you and the number of possible outcomes get smaller and smaller and smaller. So you have a ton of optionality right now, especially because your competitors have raised so much. There are only so many of those giant exits that this market might be able to support. However, you can get a quote unquote, smaller exit, but actually have the same amount or more liquidity than those other founders. And you fast forward and that's actually how it played out. So we had a competitor IPO with a valuation probably around 900 million, you know, IPOs were much smaller back then, maybe a billion, but owned so little of the company after all the funding that the return to the employees actually wound up being smaller than Pardot's. Part I was acquired for about 100 million, but 100% of it was owned by the employees. So that advice from Bill Gurley was absolutely awesome. I don't know that he followed the space or knew how it played out, but it was really, really cool to see. Jason Lemkin from Saster did a little sort of report on how the marketing automation market turned out and the three different paths that three different vendors took, how they all got to liquidity, all had good outcomes, but all took a totally different path to get there. Uh, So that was something that was really interesting. We funded the business in our later years with uh, Silicon Valley Bank. So banks, traditional banks, for the most part, are not very friendly to startups. They want assets
1: to seize. Silicon Valley Bank is awesome, by the way. So we're a customer, we're a big fan, and yeah, right there with you. They were
2: fantastic for us. So yeah, most banks we talk to, they're like, how many printing presses do you have that we can (laughs) seize if we need to? It's like, well, (laughs) we don't actually print that much in our loons and things. You know, like, there's just not that much you could come after. Uh, But Silicon Valley Bank basically came in and they looked at recurring revenue as sort of a very predictable indicator of how the business is going to do. And so they would give us a line of credit that would expand over time, based on our growing base of recurring revenue. And again, at the time, you know, thanks to our government, interest rates were effectively zero. Uh, so for us, you know, it sort of felt like free money. We were just paying to service it a little bit, and we always had this supply of non dilutive capital. So we were essentially at that point always hiring for everything. We were pretty tight about our core values, so sometimes we didn't pull the trigger as fast as some other companies might, but that's what really you know fueled us all the way to our exit.
0: So, so I think Chad is <laughs> is just about to like stand up, up, chair, stand up up power stand power up and run so, a lap around the building.
1: Uh, cuz the first the first time I heard from a a uh, top tier VC, and we, we raised a small angel round from uh, Founders Fund and yep. Sequoia Scouts. And in the follow up conversations where we were exploring raising capital, we heard something similar. And I originally bristled at that because yeah. it was like, "Oh, what are you saying? Like we're not good enough, or something like that." But I think it's important to recognize that it might just be good good advice um, depending on your business and the market. Adam, I would love to hear how how did you negotiate the acquisition because you were able to keep the Pardot brand, not just through the exact target acquisition, but their acquisition by Salesforce. You were able to keep the brand alive and well. And now we're, you know, we're happy customers of Pardot. They sponsor marketing trends. Um, it's a great I product. Pardot puppies
0: at
2: the, <laughs>
1: the stickers at home.
2: A lot of Pardot puns are out there.
1: <laughs> so many. In
2: the wilderness. I would just came back from Japan where we had a user group in Tokyo. There were about 150 people there. And a woman was wearing Parbot earrings. So Parbot <laughs> was the uh, original mascot of Pardot. They were handmade.
0: Very cool. Yeah. Oh, that's so great! And then, and by the way, on Twitter too, they get going. That's great.
1: <laughs> yeah. So yeah, how did you keep the brand alive and well? Was it just growth? Because I, I read that it was, you know, the growth during the acquisition was still pretty high, and you were able to maintain that.
2: Yeah. So the the brand was not in any way part of the negotiations. You know, it it was just something where, as part of Exact Target, it made sense to keep the two businesses very separate. We had seen in the past another company acquire a very early marketing automation vendor. Uh, a B2C email marketing company acquired a marketing automation vendor, and they sort of munged the brands together, munged the products together. And it wound up being sort of a one plus one equals 0.5, which I wasn't a math major, but it's not ideal. You know, the two coming together somehow were, were worse than the, the sum of the parts. And we were very cognizant of, hey, look, this is running well, this is running well, Let's look for kind of easy wins between the two, lead pass back and forth, a bigger funnel. But let's not overcomplicate things just to integrate things. Uh, So we kept them pretty separate. And then it was only about, I think, eight months close to close or 10 months close to close. It was a very short window between the two acquisitions. When Salesforce acquired us, that was a really unique experience for me. because That was the first time I got to meet Mark Benioff. Uh, So the exact target CEO had me as part of the diligence team on the exact target side. And I still remember going to Mark's office, you know, at, at one of his homes, and it's a huge table, a little bit like the one we're at today. And so I give the middle seat to my CEO, Scott Dorsey, thinking Mark would sit directly opposite of him, and I sit on kind of the edge, the corner. And of course, Mark sits down directly opposite of me. <laughs> if you've seen Mark, you know, he's probably 6'5. I'm like five seven, uh, so he's you know he's basically a good foot taller than me, looking down directly onto my bald head, and I got to present the entire Pardot business to him. And at, you know at the time we were small, we were probably a you know twenty million dollar a year business, which in the scheme of Salesforce was was fairly small at the time, and it was incredible how interested he was and how. He could rotate or, or alternate between being high-level visionary, like you're used to seeing at Dreamforce, to going in the weeds and saying, hey, Adam, what if you had three more salespeople in this region, one more in that, one less in that, watch what it does to your numbers. And just understanding SaaS models you know, with such kind of fluency, I was blown away. Uh, you know, CEO of this huge company can rotate back and forth, and I, I said, wow, like I, I, always want to make sure that I can do that because I think that's a rare thing. And he also, he made the decision at that time. He said, you know what, Exact Target is focused on B two C. That's going to become the core of our marketing cloud. We're going to think of marketing cloud as going kind to of B two C marketing. We're going to combine it with our other assets, which at the time were were largely social media marketing related. He said, part of it's B two B. Pardot's lifeblood is sales and marketing alignment. We're going to align that really tightly with our Sales Cloud, which is sort of the, the core of Salesforce. So he made that distinction you know within like the first minute of hearing about the business, uh, which I think was was pretty prophetic and played out really well. That's wild. and allowed us to play you know all the leverage of Salesforce as we grew
1: the Pardot business. And you mentioned Sales Cloud there. It's uh, the largest business unit inside Salesforce? That's right. And that's uh, a big responsibility. Uh, how, do you, how do you think about being an EVP and GM? What's that like?
2: It was about three and a half years ago, Mark asked me to, to take over Sales Cloud. And I think it's telling that they have someone who came from B2B marketing here running sales. I think it speaks to how we think about sales and marketing alignment. We really think in B2B marketing, you have two customers you have your end customer, and you have your sales team. And if you're not if you're not doing good things with both of those, you're not going to be successful. So we think B2B marketers need to think much more about revenue, much more about pipeline, much more about kind of business that, that the team is booking. And I think Mark is also great about giving entrepreneurs and founders a new challenge uh, once they come into Salesforce. So a lot of times we come in, we run our businesses, and then he plucks them or, or sort of puts them into different roles. If you look at The president uh, and chief product officer of the company today, it's Brett Taylor, who was the founder of Quip and formerly the CTO at Facebook. If you look at the former head of product at Salesforce, Alex Dayone also came through an acquisition of his company called Instranet, which eventually became Service Cloud. The person that's running Commerce Cloud came from an acquisition that eventually formed part of, uh, of Chatter and other things. So there are many entrepreneurs in Salesforce that came from acquisitions that I think Mark has sort of expertly picked new and exciting challenges that may or may not be directly related to what they used to work on. And so it keeps all of us growing and thriving and thinking about, you know, new ways to be entrepreneurial within Salesforce. The
1: Ohana Mafia, I think. I'm, <laughs> I'm, starting, I'm starting to hear uh, some chatter about that. Um <laughs> Adam, how do you think about balancing your work life and your personal life? So this is an issue a lot of people are trying to figure it out. A lot of people are trying to find out, is there balance or do I just have to make some sacrifices? You have two kids, you're very busy. Any strategies, anything you can share there?
2: Sure. So first of all, congratulations on on your kiddo as well. Um, it It is a ton of fun, but as you mentioned, a ton of work. And when we were talking in the hall, I mentioned, you know, kids are sort of logarithmic. Having one kid is like one kid. Having two kids is 10 kids. I have a friend who has three. We went skiing together. That felt easily like 100 <laughs> kids. Um, so yeah, if, if you think you're busy now, go skiing with 100 kids.
1: Work a life... function that you love? Is, <laughs> is right. that what you're... Yeah. So uh, work-life balance is
2: critical. I mean, all of us are going to spend most of our lives working and you want it to be as fun as possible. You don't want it to dominate your life. It's an important part of your life, but it's not your whole life. With Pardot... There were a couple of times when I was running it where I just felt completely cooked and burnt out. And that wasn't necessarily, I think, from workload. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was more from never being able to turn off. Yeah. And you know, you're know, you an entrepreneur. It's a lonely business. Very few people understand what it's like to be an entrepreneur. And for us, and being in Atlanta, there were very few other entrepreneurs at the time. Uh, we had the MailChimp founders right. who were sort of really getting things going with MailChimp at the time, but there were not a lot of startups. And you start to internalize a lot of things. You know, hey, I'm responsible for all these people. If this thing's not successful, no one's going to have a job. And it's completely irrational, right? If, if for some reason Pardot hadn't made it, everyone would have gotten great jobs. They had great experience. The You know, things were fine. They were all smart. You're on the
1: bleeding edge of technology. There's not really a downside. There's not, <laughs> yeah. there's
2: not as much of a downside as you sort of make out in your head. And the issues you're facing... In the scheme of things, are probably not that serious, but it, you take everything personally because it's yours because you founded it. And what I thought is that that would go away once I sold the business, and I was really surprised that it didn't. Even when I was running it as part of Exact Target, and then later as part of Salesforce, I would still feel things just as acutely. You know, every every customer bit of feedback—it's oh, it's painful or if you know we had traded a customer or lost a deal. And I would feel those more acutely sometimes than the wins and all the great news we had. That was surprising that that happened both pre and post acquisition. And I think some of that just comes uh, potentially with being a founder. What was interesting to me is when I took over Sales Cloud, it lifted. Much bigger business. It's like, hey, add another zero to the revenue and then some. Huge, huge business. But because I didn't found it, I felt like I could come at it with beginner's eyes. I didn't have any baggage, and I could be extremely rational in my decision-making process. That was completely unexpected. As far as work-life balance goes, the advice I give to my team is to, first of all, realize that you have an endless amount of work. That doesn't sound very good, right? But it actually is a good thing. If you ever somehow got to the end of your pile of work, you should be extremely worried. You're like, this is not the right company. (laughs) But because we're in SaaS, we're in an incredibly fast-growing market, we're a growth company, you have an endless amount of work. There's always something you could be doing. And so it's a matter of ruthless prioritization. You're never going to finish you know, you could work for 80 hours a week for the entire year. You're not going to finish. There's always going to be more to do. To put it in sort of engineering terms, you have this backlog. And things can move around in the backlog, but there are always going to be things in the backlog. And one of the things that I think is hard at a lot of high-performance cultures is separating urgent from important. At high-performance cultures, they tend to get mixed together. And we have so many ways to distract one another. We have chat, we have text, we have you know, name your pick in terms of communication channel. And the nature of those makes everything seem more urgent than it is. And so I really encourage people to take a step back. And when someone pings them and says, hey, can you send me X, Y, and Z to say, sure, I can get it to you tomorrow. Or, hey, I can get it to you by the end of the week. And the recipient of that will usually say, hey, it sounds great. You know, they're not, they're not going to get frustrated or angry. But most people never set that expectation, They just do whatever is most urgent and then it takes them 30 minutes or it takes them an hour to sort of get back into the flow of what they're doing. So set boundaries, realize your work's never going to end. It's just ruthless prioritization of your backlog and try to focus on what's important or separate what's important from what's urgent.
1: There's a great book called uh, Finite and Infinite Games where the goal of the book is, or as it's laid out, is basically like you want to find games that are going to go on forever that are fun to play uh, for as long as possible. So it sounds like you're a pretty voracious learner. Maybe it's not books, maybe it's podcasts or something. What's your learning routine like? Do you talk to people? Do you listen to podcasts? Uh, Are you reading white papers? What are you doing?
2: Uh, it's, It's kind of a mix. It's probably all of the above. So first, I try to make sure I'm always challenged in my actual job. Uh, So when I think about my job, it has to meet three requirements. It has to be fun, I have to love the people I work with, and I have to be challenged, I have to be learning. What I find is a lot of times people find those first two. They're like, hey, this is a great environment, this is fun, I love coming to work every day, I really like the people I work with, but boy, I've been doing the same thing for four years and I'm starting to get into a rut. And so I think a manager always has a responsibility to help that person find a way to satisfy all three of those things, even if it's not on their team, and even if it's not in their company. You may just not be able to offer it. It's also incumbent on that that individual contributor to ask for those three things. So first, I just try to always make sure I'm always learning. And again, I think you know at, at Salesforce and and Mark in particular has been really good about giving me those opportunities to stretch. You know, other ways I learn. You know, there are blogs I track, and you know I have my reader on my iPhone, and that's much more to me about just getting as many headlines as possible and just blowing through the headlines. And inevitably, in a given day, there will be five headlines that are really interesting to me that I dig in deeper, but really it's just about getting a scan of everything. And then I like podcasts. You know, it's just an immersive, uh, I'm really pandering to the audience here, aren't I? There we go. But, uh, it. but it's a really kind of immersive way to, uh, to interact with material. And I think the average person has sort of so much dead time mm. that podcasts are a really good way to do something useful during that dead time. They're um, augmented
1: reality that works now. It's, gr- it's ex- great. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Exactly. Yes. It's augmented reality for your gym workout sure. or for your, yeah. your commute to work. So.
1: so when it comes to the Bay Area and uh, Silicon Valley, there are a lot of folks who are leaving. Maybe they're heading out. Maybe they think that the problems here are intractable. What do you think the future holds for San Francisco, for the Bay Area?
2: Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> um, so I am pretty new to the Bay Area. So I moved to the Bay Area four years ago with my family from Atlanta. My daughter was born in the Bay Area, so uh, so she's she's more of a newbie and we're starting to put roots down here. We we really like it here. My brother lives out here. I just moved my mother here, um, and so so we're we're pretty settled. It's a city of uh, certainly of extremes. You know, there's there's an incredible amount of wealth flowing into the city and flowing into the surroundings at all times. We're seeing an IPO boom happen right now, which brings incredible things, but you know it also leads to a, a bigger and bigger disparity and income gap, and so these are these are tough problems. For us to tackle as
1: a community, yeah. Not to be flippant, but I think that like a lot of the problems, like between sales and marketing, you talk about sales and marketing alignment. We kind of need alignment between tech and the rest of the Bay Area, and, yeah, and I feel I think, like that's just starting to become a thing that every tech company now is—it's uh, on their radar, at least, right?
2: Well, I don't know that it's on every company's radar. Gotcha. I think certain companies are much more plugged into it than sure. others, but you know that—that that could be enough, right? Because probably thirty years ago. You wouldn't have had much business involved. You might have said, "Hey, that's really the government's problem." Right. I and mean, I think today, you know, a lot of these big employers are are stepping up and getting more involved. Now you're seeing them more involved in the political scene. You're also seeing them much, much more heavily involved in the philanthropic scene. Um, and in, you know, I think tech has an incredible capacity for philanthropy. I also think, you know, the the Tech workers often, you know, the mindset of tech workers are often really compatible with philanthropic efforts. You know, my team, one of the things we're passionate about is equal access to education and public education. So my team here adopted a school, you know, not not quite in our local community in San Francisco, but just across the bridge uh, in Oakland, the Frick Impact Academy. And the idea is, you know, if every executive at our company can circle a school and have their team sort of focus on helping that school you know, what kind of a difference can you make? Whether it's, you know, just helping them host their workshops and career fairs, whether it's teaching programming to kids, that sounds getting amazing. getting kids into STEM. Yeah. yeah and, uh, you know, it started as something where we had two members of our team who were really interested in helping that school and had been doing it for many years. All of a sudden we have 40, 50 people participating in it. It's been incredible.
1: It's really right. cool. All I had was bring your tractor to work day or drive your tractor to work or school. So that's a... Uh... You know, ever since seeing that episode
2: mm -hmm. of Mad Men, I've decided (laughs) tractors should never be in the office. I don't know if you saw
0: that one, but it did not end well. I didn't. (laughs) Um, No, I was just going to say, I grew up in Oakland and I can tell you that uh, that stuff never used to happen. And it's something that I think a lot of times we just forget about like how much have, I mean, the fact that there's technology companies that are headquartered in Oakland, for example, or the fact that uh, just so much work is being looked at across the whole Bay Area now by technology companies and their employees, I think is just ultimately, I think it's lost a little bit to like the broader narrative uh, because they really are like people are so, especially in technology, like I think so many people talk about how can we be helpful and this sense of like collaboration and helpfulness. And that's like the one thing that, you know, we've been Know, going to Dreamforce for the past five years and uh, have been involved in Salesforce and obviously being a customer and everything, but that's the one thing that like you know we're part of the one 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 program and everything. But I think it really exudes, especially like when it comes from the top, then it can have a, yep. a massive you know trickle down effect to to people that want to help.
2: I totally agree about it coming from the top. You know, in our case, obviously you know Mark and Parker and the other co founders of Salesforce started with that one 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 model, so they they give. You know, one percent of employee time to philanthropy, one percent of equity they put in a five hundred one c three nonprofit to focus on philanthropy, and then one percent of product. So you have today. You know, you look at that at the time. Mark likes to joke that was really easy because you know our equity was worth nothing, we had no time, and we had no product, <laughs> right? But then you you fast forward twenty years and you look at you know the millions and millions of dollars that that foundation has been able to give in grants. You look at the millions of hours, you know, across thirty-eight thousand employees that we've been able to donate, and then you look at the thirty thousand nonprofits that run on Salesforce. You can have an incredible impact, but that's just one company's impact. You know, you mentioned that you guys have also adopted the one-one-one model, which is awesome, and there are nine thousand other companies that have done it. So it becomes such a force multiplier. But I agree, it has to be a CEO initiative because if it's a CEO initiative and it comes from the top down, that sets the tone you have so many employees out there who are excited and willing to help and they sort of just often don't know how to get started absolutely and if the company makes it easy for them and says hey this, this is something that's important to the company we want you to do this we want you to feel the freedom to do this it will happen
0: but what's cool about salesforce just to to piggyback off that is like my friends who are employees here their teams have different focuses. And that's yep. what's so cool. Like one of the teams like, you know, does dog walking at a local shelter and like has been doing that for like five years. Stuff like that where it's being able to self-select into it. That's what's so cool about 111 is this idea that it's not prescriptive of what you do. It's that you do something. You can get as
1: creative yep. as you want. Yeah. yeah.
2: Right. Well, people are going to be much more likely, one, to do it, and two, to do it well if it's something that they're passionate about. And I, you know, the vast majority of people have some cause that they're passionate about. And I love having the freedom to be able to choose what that is.
1: So Adam, you've been super generous with your time. Thank you. We have two final questions here. So I would love to hear what's on your work radar for the next year that you can share that you're excited about? And then what's on your personal radar that you're excited about?
2: Sure, on the work radar, I'm really excited about all of these business systems, which today, you know, they're either systems of record you know, essentially they were they started as databases, uh, or their systems of engagement. They're systems that you can use to personalize interactions with your customers, to market to them, to sell to them, to, to serve them from a service angle. All of these systems are gonna go on that journey from system of record to system of engagement to system of intelligence. So we're at this point where we're going to see AI be infused into everything that we use. We're already seeing it to quite a, a quite a bit in our consumer lives, you know, in the phones we have in our pockets and the smart speakers in our houses. It's early days in B2B. You know, most CIOs have AI on their agenda, but they're still sort of figuring out how they want to use that at their companies. When I think across my product portfolio at Salesforce, you know, we're starting to roll out AI and have been in market with AI for a couple of years for many, many different roles within the sales process. And I think that's just going to have a, a profound impact uh, on the way people sell and market in the future. In my personal life, you know, you mentioned I have two kids, uh, so I think when you're an adult, whatever hobbies you had are now your kids. I <laughs> am um, fortunate. Uh, my son is uh, is six, and so he was at a, a really good age to get him on skis this year for the first time in Lake Tahoe. I only booked two days because you know it could be a complete flaming disaster. You never (laughs) know when you get kids on skis and he loved it. So we immediately went up the next weekend. So I'm excited to to keep him on skis this year. And then I have a little one, get her on a sled.
1: Very cool. Adam, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It was a great time.
1: Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right.